I'd like to begin with a story about a journey to awakening. And this is really a story about the Buddha's awakening. But really, if we look deeply, a lot of what is told in the story, we can know from our own lives, from our own story. And so you might listen to this in a way that helps you to learn about the historical Buddha that lived 2,500 years ago, or it may just have metaphorical or mythological meaning to you. 2,500 years ago, in a small kingdom in the foothills of the Himalayas, near what is now the border of Nepal and India, in a small kingdom of the uh, Shakya clan, a young prince was born. And when he was born, his parents named him Siddhartha. And this means he whose wishes are fulfilled. At the time of his birth, the wise men in the area were called upon by his parents, who were the uh, king and queen of that small kingdom. And the wise men foretold that this young baby would grow up to be either a world monarch or a Buddha a fully enlightened being, fully awakened being. And so since the king wanted an heir to his kingdom, he did everything possible at the time to assure that uh, the Buddha, the the, uh, Siddhartha, his son, would be a world monarch. And so, The king, his father, contrived to surround Siddhartha with everything that uh, was pleasurable, pleasures of all kinds, luxuries, delights. No expense was spared to surround the young prince with everything pleasant surrounding him. The king, his father, did his very best to keep away from him everything unpleasant, everything disagreeable, all conditions that caused unhappiness or pain. So Siddhartha grew up and he married a beautiful princess from a neighboring kingdom and they lived in three palaces during their marriage together and each palace was situated Uh, in a beautiful part of the country that was most beautiful for that season of the year. One day, Siddhartha began to wonder. He began to be curious about what was outside the palace walls, what was outside the kingdom of all of these pleasant surroundings that had been contrived to be around him so he would not experience the least bit of unhappiness or suffering. He wanted to see what was outside the palace. He wanted to see what was beyond um, this controlled kind of life in a way. And so he asked his charioteer, whose name was Chana, to take him beyond beyond the boundaries of what he had known up to that point, beyond the boundaries of the palace grounds. And so Siddhartha's father and mother dreaded this moment because uh, it was a sign of the prophecy of the wise men unfolding. 
And so because the king, his father, was determined to cover up everything disagreeable as he went beyond the palace, the king ordered that all the infirm, the aged, the poor, the beggars were hidden. He had the roads strewn with perfumed flowers and he made sure that only the young and the beautiful were uh, able to be allowed in the streets, those strong. So all the preparations were taken to cover up the unpleasant by his powerful father, to cover up the unpleasant. But the Buddha-to-be's fate was more powerful than this. And the next day, Siddhartha and Chana were off to the village uh, beyond the palace walls. And as they uh, went towards that area, there was a cool breeze. The mountains were rising behind them. The morning sun was shedding a gentle light upon the terrain of the land. And they reached the village where the garlands and flowers were strewn and the crowds of happy people and children, beautiful, bodied, able-bodied people were around laughing, all by order of the king. And suddenly, out of nowhere, there came the first of the four heavenly messengers that this Buddha-to-be learned from. The first heavenly messenger was a heavenly messenger of old age. And so this messenger, this apparition, appeared like a cloud, wrinkled, a toothless old man appeared, clothed in rags, bent, twisted, blind. It was quite a pitiful sight. And the Buddha-to-be was quite shocked to see this sight, as he had never seen this sight before. And so he turned to his charioteer, Chana, and asked him, what is this? And Chana said, this is an old man, sire. And he said, is this what happens, the Buddha to be asked, this is what happens then to the body. Uh, it first begins as being robust and beautiful, and then old age comes, and the body begins to get weak and bent. And Chana said, yes, this is what happens to a human being, and it happens to all beings that he knew of. And so the Buddha and Chana, the Buddha-to-be and Chana went on, and they came upon another apparition, and this was the heavenly messenger of sickness. And so this uh, heavenly messenger appeared to Siddhartha. It was a sick person, staggering, sweating, wild-eyed and thin, coughing up phlegm, feverish and tormented. And so the Buddha-to-be stayed, stayed steady with that apparition and was able to be with it in a way where his heart and mind didn't close down, where it was able to really receive that truth. And so again, he turned to Chana and asked, was this man born like this? And Chana said, no, sire. This man became like this in his life. He was healthy before and now he is sick. 
And so this was the second heavenly messenger of sickness. And they went on, and they came upon a man who was laying very still on a board. And there were people carrying this board with this still man laying on it. And the people were wailing and crying. And they were taking this still, very still man to a place where there was fire. And so Chana asked, uh, the, the Buddha-to-be asked Chana about this man. And he said, is this man asleep? And Chana said, no, sire, this man is dead. And Siddhartha asked, will this happen to me? And Chana said, yes, sire, it's happened to everyone I've known. It happens to all. And so this was the third heavenly messenger, the heavenly messenger of death. And they came across then the fourth heavenly messenger, a wandering monk. And Siddhartha saw this monk had a very serene gaze, that he had a walk that was very peaceful, that there was a nobility to his being, and there was quite an ease to his being. And so this was the last heavenly messenger. And so also the Buddha-to-be asked Chana about this person, and Chana answered that this person had gone beyond the understanding of what this world gives to a deeper understanding of what is beyond the appearances of this world. And what happened to Siddhartha when he opened to, when he accepted the understandings, the truths of these four heavenly messengers is that it connected the prince to his countless previous lifetimes of practice and understanding. And it deepened in him a sense of inquiry, inquiring more deeply about what is the nature of this body and mind beyond its appearances or beyond what I want it to be? What is the nature of suffering? What is the cause of suffering? Is there an end to suffering? And what is the path that leads to the end of suffering? So it incited in Siddhartha, a great sense of urgency to know, to understand this more deeply, this sense of urgency that we call samvega, a spiritual urgency. And so the final part of his journey, his spiritual awakening began, and his deepest commitment to know the truth of life was born. Each one of us, too, has our own stories. And each one of us, I'm sure, can talk about in depth and with great uh, heart the heavenly messengers that have come to us in our lives and how that may have opened us, how that may have closed us to life. And so indeed, sometimes these messengers are not so heavenly when they close us down, but they can be if they allow us to awaken to a deeper, a higher potential as human beings. 
So when these messengers come to us and we allow ourselves to open to them, they are a call to our awakening. Our story or our messengers may not be the exactly the same as the Buddha's or as anyone else's. They may not come in the same time or intensity. They may be many small ones or one big one. But in any case, they're basically the same. And we begin to see when we're on a retreat like this, when all the props and diversions are taken from us, when we have really nothing to divert our attention uh, as much anymore, we're able to see more deeply into the nature of who we really are. What is this body and mind? What is suffering? Is there an end to it? What is the cause of it? All of those questions we may not articulate in just that same way, but they're there in various forms. It's interesting to note in the story of Siddhartha, his journey to awakening as the Buddha, that he ventured beyond his familiar terrain. And that's what we're doing here. We're venturing beyond our familiar terrain. And we can see sometimes how we are in many ways in our lives like the father and the mother of Siddhartha, how we want to um, surround ourselves with everything that will prevent us from experiencing unhappiness and pain, from opening to that, to surround ourselves with what is pleasant so that we don't have to experience the pain of suffering, but that we can, like the Buddha, have a kind of courage or a curiosity to be able to open to it and to explore it and to really see how phantom-like it is and to discover for ourselves what it's about and not to um, take anymore anybody's answers but to find the answers for ourselves. It takes a great amount of willingness to do this, a great amount of intention that is accompanied by wisdom, the wisdom to know for ourselves. So there are some inner qualities that we need along the way, which we are developing here in our practice. What's so interesting about the Buddha-to-be, Siddhartha, as he went beyond the palace grounds, ventured beyond what was known, is that he just got really curious. He was very curious about what was going on. He had that spirit of exploration, of investigation. And that is, in that story, that particular story, the energy that led him, a spirit of curiosity, of exploration, of interest that led him beyond the palace walls, led him beyond what was known. There's a, a famous scientist, I'm sure you've heard of Albert Einstein, and we all think of Albert Einstein as, as being a very, very gifted, highly um, intelligent person. But he said one time that it's not a matter of being more gifted, but a matter of just being more curious and maybe more patient. 
So what is this journey to awakening that we are on? So often we think or we expect this spiritual journey will lead us to some wonderful place, to something very different than what we experience in our lives, to what we're experiencing now. Yet the great irony is, or sometimes it's called a cosmic joke, is that it simply leads us back to ourselves, this great spiritual journey to awakening. It leads us to the present moment, a place that hasn't been explored very much. It leads us to the riches that have always been within that present moment, long covered up with the stuff of life, with the lists of things to do, with the habits that we get lost in with delusion. A famous line from T.S. Eliot that's so uh, eloquent is, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. And so really, in a way, this is where we're going. We're opening to, we're journeying to, and this is what the awakening is all about. It's to the present moment. We're really becoming more awake to our lives in this way. When we can be alive, awake, um, all of our senses working fully in this present moment without being distracted by the past or falling into the future. When we can learn to do this, we can live our lives with greater ease, greater happiness. We've all been born or come into this life with an enormous hidden wealth, with an enormous kindness of heart, an immensity of mind, very big, boundaryless mind, with clarity. It's a possibility. And we're all here in this practice, in this journey to awakening, because we somehow have gotten in touch with this potential that we have to touch into this enormous wealth, to live from that place in our lives, to give from it. Maybe we've seen the flickering light of this wealth, of this treasure of wisdom, first in someone else, and then maybe it inspires us to look within ourselves. And we learn when we do this practice that it doesn't take much, that somehow there may be moments when we touch into that light, to that wisdom, to that enormous wealth that's there, even if just for a flicker of a moment or a sliver of seeing the light of it. And that's what brings us back over and over. We may see it in someone else in a, or feel it from a place or read it and be inspired from a book. And when we recognize it, when we recognize it, we can do that because it's within us, and that's how we know it, that it can be true. I have a granddaughter, Shalia, and she's someone who reminds me of that often. And uh, not long ago, it was last year, when she graduated, she had a, a couple of honors in her graduation of being 
the best reader in the class, and also she had the best attitude in the class, they say. So she got a little prize uh, certificate for it. And so when I called her up, she lives in California and we live in Hawaii. When I called her, I said to her, uh, Shalia, how did you get so smart? You're, you're such a smart girl. And she said, Nana, when you got it, you got it. She, was, she calls me Nana. So I said, wow, where did you get that from? And she said, Nana, you got it too. <laughs> Whenever I feel not so confident in myself, I hear her words, you got it too. So maybe we see it in someone else. We've contact the flicker in our own hearts. And it beckons us to keep following what calls us on our journey, to keep following that. So why do we come to this practice? It's not easy to do. They say that conquering oneself is harder than conquering all the armies of the world. And I'm sure all of us can attest to that just in the short time we've been here so far. For some people, um, for me, when people have asked me, what brought you to the Buddha's path? And for me, it was suffering that brought me to the Buddha's path. And the very first noble truth that the Buddha spoke of, the truth of suffering, which Steve will speak of later, I believe, later in the retreat. The first noble truth that the Buddha expounded upon was the truth of suffering. Sometimes it's misinterpreted as, as life is suffering, but, and that is a very inadequate interpretation of that noble truth. It's really uh, the truth of suffering and when I came across that, and it really connected with what my actual experience of life is when I was truthful with myself, was that life, it is hard. And I could see, I didn't have to go very deep in my heart to feel the suffering of my own heart and to feel the immensity of it in the world. And so I felt, with uh, hearing the noble truth of the Buddha, um, someone was finally telling the truth and coming from a place that started from reality, from what life is as a human being. And so I trusted that. So maybe we come to it from some great suffering that urges us to find a deeper meaning of life, which is how I came into this practice. And for maybe some of us, it's a sense of inquiry, a curiosity about what life is all about. Or maybe we want to make a difference in the world. We really want our lives to somehow benefit others. And I love the way that the Tibetans have brought to all of us this understanding of bodhicitta, this understanding of doing your practice for the benefit of all beings, or being in your life for the benefit of all beings, offering your energy of whatever you do for the benefit of all beings. And sometimes when my own practice gets hard, and it's really difficult for me to take one more step on my walking path, or be with one more wandering mind. And then I am, I can be open to it. I have this deep sense 
once in a while that's so satisfying um, and keeps me going that I do this not just for myself but for the benefit of all beings and it helps me take one more step with awareness one more breath with awareness one more opening to fear or jealousy or aggravation with awareness or maybe it's because we want to really be more awake in life to wake up to our moment to moment being in life not be so lost in the past or in the future Many people's lives are so hard, I see, being um, on this path with so many, sharing the spiritual life of so many. I feel uh, great teachings from. And lives can be so hard and so hectic that just to get a little peace or a little quietness of mind is a big accomplishment just to find a moment when the mind can rest a little bit. And for some, that experience of having calmness, uh, training and concentration is of great benefit. It connects us to a strengthening confidence that can bring us deeper into wisdom, into our ability to practice. It's a great support, a great help, a great foundation. But it isn't enough. Just being calm when conditions are right isn't enough to be in this world. We really have to be able to keep our hearts and minds open in hell because that's how it is sometimes. How can we experience the world with that kind of openness and wisdom, that kind of bigness, that kind of equanimity? We can't just uh, be happy with the happiness that comes from a mind protected from the hindrances. How can we make sense of the chaos? Not, not just in the world, but indeed in our own hearts and minds. How can we make sense of that? Once in a long practice, intensive practice that I did, I realized that as one goes deeper in understanding through the practice, we find that the only place to feel really safe and really protected and sublimely peaceful is when we can truly rest in our moment-to-moment awareness of how things are. And how are things in the moment? They're always changing. They're so vulnerable because of that change we feel so vulnerable. When change happens and it's pleasant, we want to hang on to that pleasantness and it causes suffering. When things happen that's unpleasant, we want to push away that unpleasantness and go to where it's pleasant. And so we suffer from that aversion. Or sometimes we just space out lost in the past, in the future, in delusion. And so we begin to open to how things are more. We begin with deeper understanding, with this ability to open the mind and heart, to accept how things are, to move deeply in that world to relax in that truth. 
to relax in the chaos of how things are. Here in the practice, we offer very precise instructions and techniques for steadying the mind, opening the heart, unifying the mind, the body, the heart. And we use the breath as an anchor uh, because it's consistently present. Although it's ever-changing in its own way, the breath is consistently present. So we use the breath as an anchor to steady the mind, to clarify perception, to strengthen our, that steadiness. But it's not the object of the practice to be with the breath all the time. And I, I think it's really helpful for those just beginning on the path to know uh, this from the very start, that the breath is not the end-all and be-all of the practice. It's just a tool for sharpening the awareness. We can use that sharpness of awareness, then, on everything that our awareness lands on, not just the breath, but all, all the sensations that we open to in the body, whether they're painful or pleasurable or neutral, to um, pleasant or unpleasant or uh, neutral, feelings we can open to, to all states of mind we can open to. And so the object of the practice, through, uh, through the techniques that we offer, is to be able to open to everything that we can experience as a human being, not just the breath. So I'd like to uh, I hope that that's very clear to you in the beginning. And as we open to everything that we can experience as a human being, we begin to open to some truths, some deeper truths about who we really are. What is this body and mind really made up of? And so that allows us to go deeper. So the object of practice is to, the, is to understand the nature of our being, the nature of what's going on, the nature of life profoundly, and not to get lost in methodology or the technique. So please just use the techniques we offer you as a means to an end but it's not uh, something we have to, um, like the Buddha says, when you know when you when you've used the raft to cross the river. Once you cross, you don't have to carry the raft on your head. So, what is this process of awakening? What occurs? in the process of awakening, if we can go deeply into it more. The process of awakening has four different um, functions, really. First, it opens us to the present moment's experience. So there is this opening that takes place. It kind of squarely faces the present moment and then opens to it. And then there is the accepting of that moment, which happens immediately, almost simultaneously. So there is this opening, this accepting. And then upon the accepting, there is this ability to explore, to investigate, to sink into the moment very deeply 
and to understand the deeper qualities, the characteristics of that moment. And then as that exploration or the truths, the characteristics reveal themselves, we see that we can let go. We don't have to um, form any kind of attachment to the moment, whether it's pleasurable uh, because we like it to remain or if it's unpleasant because we want something else there instead. We're able to let go. So there's opening, accepting, investigating, and letting go. These are the functions of our practice, of the practice of awareness, to open, accept, investigate, and let go. So what happens in the process? As we open to the present moment, as we accept and investigate, we begin to see how quickly, how just uh, profoundly this understanding of change of what is called anicca, impermanence is. It doesn't mean that the weather, it doesn't just mean at the level that the seasons change in the year or the, the weather changes in the day or that your uh, teacup breaks and you have to get a new one. Not that kind of impermanence, but very, very profound and deep understanding of the quickly changing moment-to-moment nature of our life. We begin to be able to let go not because of any effort or strain or striving, but because we see that things are going anyway. There's birth and death in every moment. And the opening and the acceptance of that can be so profound and uh, allow a great ease for there to come about in our practice. There's a line from the Sutta Nipata that says, let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not at what remains in the middle. When you really get a sense of that in your practice, what's left? Really begin to see the empty nature of life. It can be very profound. I first got a sense of this years ago when I was practicing with my teacher, um, Manindra. He was giving a course in my uh, home of Maui. And um, I was just following the instructions with like the countenance of a seven-year-old. Just, okay, tell me what to do. All right, just follow one breath, one step, be present. Okay, do my best. And I was walking on a path uh, outside and went, was going by um, some flowers. There were some hibiscus flowers. And there was hardly a breeze blowing. It was, it was quite still. Every once in a while, a gentle breeze would come by. Actually, it was quite uh, calm, pleasant around me. And um, all of a sudden, as I was walking, I caught the flower the side and the side of my eye and just in that moment noticed seeing, seeing. And all of a sudden in that opening and the acceptance of that moment, 
there was this great quickness of change that came, even though the flower hardly moved. Difficult to um, describe. But in the moment of noticing that seeing, there was this death, this birth, and then this death of that moment. And it was so profound for me that I ran to Munindra and I told him that I, it's almost as if I saw a hole in the experience of reality, uh, many holes of emptiness in the experience of reality in that acceptance of impermanence. And it was as if the, the awareness sank deep into that moment, sank really deep into that moment. And it was beyond any kind of understanding of impermanence that had ever been experienced before. And that was the investigation of what was happening, the opening, the acceptance, and investigation, the sinking deeply, the exploration of that moment very deeply, and of deeply experiencing the unsatisfactory nature of that nothing stays stable. Everything is vulnerable. It's always coming and going. Where is there any place to find security? And there was nothing else I could do but let that moment be, let that moment change, and let that moment go. And I came to see that there's no nothing else to do when one opens to a moment, when one accepts that moment, one sinks deeply into that moment. You can't do anything else but let go because it's going. Suzuki Roshi says, Renunciation doesn't mean giving up the things of this world. Renunciation meaning letting go. Renunciation doesn't mean giving up the things of this world, the things of this world. It's seeing that they go away. So beginning to accept, in that experience, beginning to accept my life more meant a lot to me. The flower taught me so much, the changing nature of that flower that was barely perceptible taught me so much about life. And it brought me to deeper understandings. This is uh, from a letter written to Carl Jung. I always thought that when we accept things, they overpower us. But this is not true at all. By accepting reality, taking things as they are, and not as I wanted them to be, both knowledge and power have come to me. So now I intend playing the game of life being receptive to whatever comes to me, good or bad, sun and shadow, and in this way, also accepting my own nature with its positive and negative sides. By doing this, everything becomes more alive to me. When we open, we see that we can't choose what we open to. When we want to open to life, we open to what is beautiful in us and in others, 
and also what is not beautiful, what is not so acceptable. But in this way, we become more truthful. We become more honest. We become more alive to ourselves and to others. And so, this is where our practice is taking us, really back to ourselves, to living our lives, to being more alive, awake, to our present moment's experience, which gives us many levels of benefit and happiness, and leads us to the deepest happiness by seeing things more in a more profound way with wisdom. This is the practice of letting go. So I'd like to end with this. Um, this is from the Venerable Achan Sumedho. It was, um, this was sent to us through an invitation to attend the opening and consecration of their temple in Amaravati. So this was on their invitation. The mind is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness, Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through us without being caught in reaction or resistance. This is our practice of letting go. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.